Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hello and welcome to Chef Story. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today once again I have the great privilege of uh, broadcasting to you from Milan, Italy. We're here at the Expo, and we're sitting in the back of J Bar. You'll hear lots of restaurant noise for the James Beard um, American Restaurant. And tonight and last night. And I just had the most wonderful meal. We have with us none other than Paul Bartolata. And for those of you who maybe don't get to Las Vegas all that often, he is the wunderkind that Steve Wynn chose to build his uh, premium brand, um, Restaurant Bartolata Restaurante Mare, which is one of the great, great restaurants in the world. Um, Chef Bartolata was born in, um, in Milwaukee and raised in Milwaukee and really did the European journey uh, to the great restaurants of the world before himself uh, establishing one of the great restaurants of the world. So Paul, you've won lots of awards. You have um, a lot of history of um, working with the greats, but I have to say last night was one of the great nights that I've experienced. Your philosophy, your passion, your joie de vivre all came out, and I have to say you are one of a kind. You're incredible, and it's wonderful to have you on the show tonight. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. If it turned out good last night, something, we must have made a mistake. I don't know. <laughs> You know, every, every once in a while we make a mistake and it turns out good. What can I tell you? Oh, my gosh. Um, well, let's, let's start at the beginning. You're a Milwaukee guy, really. So how, how long has your, your family been in uh, Wisconsin? So uh, my, my grandparents immigrated uh, from Sicily. Um, and as I spoke about last night, you know, I'm never very critical of the Italian-American uh, history, uh, Italian-American food, because it is part of who I am. Um, and uh, so I grew up in Milwaukee, and I uh, uh, needed money to take girls out on dates. And I was an I was an A student in things I liked, and I was a D minus student in something I didn't like. And my father immediately knew early on that my son has to do something that he likes, otherwise it's going to be a rough road. Um, and I um, I found you know work in a restaurant with a little work permit when I was 15 years old. And that was a couple of weeks ago. I had hair back then. And, um, and, and I just, um, I loved the environment of the restaurant. And, you know, as an Italian-American growing up, 
the priority of our family was what's on the table and when we're the conviviality of the table. So not uncommon for an Italian family. And so we were always, you know, it was like going to the market with my dad and the fish market and going down to the meat market, the butchers and getting the handmade sausages and cheeses and things was on the there weekends. Was Italian-American? There, there, yeah, there's a, the east side of Milwaukee has a, a, a Brady Street and, and there's a, a bunch of butcher shops in, in the old Third Ward area. And my father was very active in maintaining his heritage. He was one of the founders of the Italian Community Center. So his connection with the old country was very strong. Um, and uh, I you know, rubbed off on all of the siblings. I mean, it's important to all of us. And um, so I, you know, my, uh, my, my sister was working in New York at the Rainbow Room for Tony May uh, when Tony owned it. And, uh, wait, wait, she, you're going too fast for me. Wait, wait, wait. I want to go back to when you're in the fifth grade. When I was in the fifth grade. Yeah. What I, were you into I, in the fifth well, grade? Well, let me tell you. Um, I, I can tell you when I was in third grade, um, I was late for school in a cold winter day, and I, of course, late for everything. I ran in. I threw my coat up on a hang on the on the hook in the hallway, and I put you know those metal lunch boxes, and I threw my metal lunch box on. I ran into class, and it didn't occur to me that I put my metal lunch box on the radiator as I was getting undressed, and there was this horrible stench in the hallway by noontime, and of course. Um, they discovered, obviously, there was something smelly coming out of the middle. And, of course, I didn't make my lunch, and so I opened it up, and my father had made octopus salad. So it was this horrible, disgusting smell, and I was mortified. Like, all my friends were like, what is that? And I went home, and I said, Dad, enough of this Italian stuff. I, I, I want ham and cheese sandwiches. I want an apple. I want a bag of chips. I want to be like everybody else. And, and, you know, my dad would make, like, my mom or dad would make, like, eggplant sandwiches and, you know, th- you know parmigiana <laughs> sandwiches and whatever. And, and, and stuff that was delicious and I loved. But, you know, you want to conform. You want to, yeah, like, fit in when you're a young guy. And uh, I was mortified. And, and <laughs> now I look back on it and laugh and say, you know, now it's a little bit of a badge of honor. It's the yes. fact that, you know, I... I feel bad for somebody that all they know is ham and cheese. I mean, I love a ham and cheese sandwich, yeah. but but you know, it's you know that's why they make chocolate and so vanilla ice cream. Were you into sports? Were you cooking? You, you know? No, I mean, were, were you always into food? Yeah. But what were the other things that rounded you out as a kid? Oh, I was involved in everything. I loved, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm a person that loves literature. So as a as a young man, you know, I did well in my philosophy and literature classes, and I was an avid tennis player, and just you know. Uh, all sports were, you know, when you're a kid, that's all you do is you so play were, sports. Were you highly focused as a kid? Were you, if you took on something, did you go really deep dive into it? Or were you kind of like a yeah. kid, you dabbled in it? No, like, I wasn't, certainly not. Um, anything I ever did, I did with this ferocious, you know, appetite to try to get it right and do it well. Um, I was too small to play football, but I was determined to until I kept getting run over because I was a little runt. <laughs> and then after, right at the end of high school, I had this growth spurt and said, why couldn't this have happened before? You know, <laughs> junior high school, I could have played football. But uh, no, I just, I just, I loved, um, I'm a social person, um, very actually frighteningly shy um, in, a, in an environment where it's just not my environment. Um, you know, I'm not shy when I'm talking about food because it's my you're in my living room. You know, you were in a restaurant, or I'm going to make dinner tonight, or when when I walk table to table, people like think you know you're very gregarious, or whatever. But 
it's easy to talk about something that you're in love with and that is something that's very much part of who you are. Uh, you know, you throw you in a room with 500 people you don't know and, and it's a totally different environment. It's, you know, when, as soon as they hear you're a chef or a person of some note or whatever, they're like, oh, you know, they want to talk to you. And, and then you end up talking about restaurant business or where you've eaten or where you, they should, where, can you recommend a restaurant in Florence or something, you know? So that's easy. But initially, um, I just, I kind of have my own very individualist person. I'm, I, I kind of, what's important to me is all that's important to me. And not selfishly, I think I'm a very giving person. I'm, I love teaching. I love sharing what I've learned. Um, I've been grateful. I've had a million different mentors who have, who have had an impact on my life, many who don't even know the profound level of impact. Tell us a couple. Um, I'm a guy like Sirio Maccioni. I, you know, I never worked for Sirio. And, and uh, the maitre d' at San Domenico in New York was Bruno Ducin. And I was a young 27-year-old chef. We opened San Domenico, New York. It was quite... A big deal. I was a young, I was you know, 28 years old. We got three stars from the New York Times. It was kind of a big deal back then, and pretty groundbreaking for an Italian restaurant at that time. Wow, wow. Absolutely. And and Bruno would would literally say to me, "Okay, Paul, you know, right after the first seating, before everybody goes to the theater, I want you to go to table 15 because it's so and so, and he's having a fight with his wife, so just say hello and leave." I said, okay. And he said, and this table, the 21, well, that's a group of Italians that knew you from Italy, and I bought them a bottle of Berlucchi from you, so make sure you, you know, stop and spend a minute or two with them. Table so-and-so, you know, is, uh, and, and he would instruct me who was in the dining, what was happening, the dynamic of what was happening. And I realized, like, this was all part of, like, Serio's training, and I learned back then that European hospitality was as much about building a relationship. Serio built the best club in history mm-hmm. in a restaurant. It's a club. Yes. And, and you have to earn the right to be a member of his club. Yes. And therefore, you have to be a frequent diner, and, and then he will take very good care of you. And some people say that, oh, there's a, there's a, there were good tables and bad tables in Serio's restaurant. Well, you know what? The bottom line is, if you want third row orchestra, it costs more than last row balcony <laughs> at the end of the day. And so, you know, Serio took care of everybody. He was impeccable. He ran a 90C restaurant. And this is how I studied his craft. In the, in the first Le Cirque, which is now Danielle's sort of bar area, it was, it was a, a, a 90-seat restaurant, and there was Romeo, Bruno Ducin, um, what was it, uh, Romeo, Bruno, what was it, Benito? Benito, and, remember Benito yeah. and Sirio on the floor. All four of them were on their own restaurant tours. Right. And, they, and, and what were they, they, they each had to suffer like seven tables. When Siri was gone for a month in August, living the life of an Italian off in August, everybody who walked in had three other guys that recognized them. No one ever entered without being recognized. We don't go to get our hair cut. You don't get your hair styled in a different salon every time. They get to know you. They know how you like your hair. They know how you like it cut. You know, they know how you like your makeup. It's like we don't look invented. The restaurant business is about a home outside of a home. It's yes, it's about food, but it's about it's about relationships. And and Syria was a, this is sort of an example of a guy who I didn't really work with, but I have watched. I watched him. I've met him many times. I knew him through all of my friends in Italy. I've been to his home in Montecatini. I watched his sons grow up. And it's just, um, tell, it gives you my age, but, but it, it just, um, like, I, I look at him. So, you know, Gianluigi Morini, the owner of San Domenico, was like a second father to me. You know, Gianluigi took me under his wing, and, and he, and, and, you know, I was, I was eating one day, like, kind of like an American. He said, you know, Paul, you need to eat with your arms down. 
You know, you eat like this. And I said, well, you know, what's the matter? He said, here's how you hold, here's how the Europeans eat. You know, we always like, you know, put the knife and fork down, change over to the fork. And he goes, that's American. He said, you're an Italian, you're a European. You need to eat with a knife and fork like this. And, he sh- and I was sort of kind of embarrassed, a little bit humbled. And then he took two beautiful Riedel Sommelier series champagne glasses and he put them under my arms. And he said, now we're going to have dinner. And I had to learn <laughs> to eat with my arms down. And, 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 then, and then things like, like I was in this wine club uh, and I had no money. I was a young apprenticing chef. And, and, and one day, it was the Tuesday where, where the restaurant was closed and I was missing wine club. And he saw me leaving my apartment. And he said, why aren't you going to wine club tonight? I said, oh, you know, I said, you know, truth is I couldn't afford it, right? And I was just, I, was, didn't, I didn't have the means to, to buy into the group every week with the wines they were drinking. And, and he had heard through, through the grapevine or bumped into one of the guys in the club saying, oh, you know. And he said, oh, I'm sorry, Paul's not coming to our wine club anymore. And Moody's like, why not? He goes, I don't know. He didn't tell me. So he cornered me. He said, why not? I said, well, you know, and I didn't want to tell him, you know, whatever. He, you know, he paid me what he paid me, whatever. And so Morini called the guys up and said, can you guys come over? And he had this amazing cellar. And he went downstairs and he picked, you know, 1961 Burgundies, you know, 1964, uh, you know, Barolos, and put a whole set of wine together and gave it to my wine club and said, Paul's now a permanent member, you know, of your wine wow. club. And, and it was just like, I get choked up thinking about it. Oh. You know, so, you know, anyway, so, so many people do these things for you that you don't realize. So, so. tell me, did you eat in fine dining growing up in Milwaukee? How um, did you, how well, did it's you funny, get on my, this well, it's a, When I was a little boy, we, when we were kids, for our birthday, the parents always said, you can go wherever you want to go. You can do whatever you want to do. Uh, for your birthday and so all the kids would choose different restaurants and my two interesting I think back on it now you know 45 years or whatever 40 years um, I would choose the Stouffer's which was a seafood restaurant that Stouffer's had I'm I'm sure it was like sole stuff with fake crab meat or something baked in the oven with some Mornay sauce, some terrible stuff like right out of a, out of a prepackaged Stouffer's thing. Well, who knows? Um, but I loved it. And there was another place on Brady Street called Beyond the Sea, which is a seafood restaurant. So interestingly enough, I, maybe I did have a passion for seafood before I even knew I did. And uh, Milwaukee's on the lake. But yeah, but not, yeah, you no. Were, we're eating lake way. fish for sure. We're eating lake no. fish. And so, you know, I fell in love with, um, with uh, the, the being around the table and sitting like we're talking. And, and, you know, every Saturday and Sunday, it was always about going to Mass and being as, being as a family and eating together and having this experience. That's, Did you that's, go to Catholic schools? Um, no, I didn't. We went to all public schools, but we were very involved in St. Bernard's Church um, and Jesu uh, and Old St. Mary's, which are the three churches that we were regulars at in, right. in Milwaukee. All that were part of my father's history and then one that was proximate to our neighborhood. So, so what was the um, greatest dish that you remember growing up then? You know, what was it, what's a dish you dream about? Well, I mean, th- there were so many, gosh, you know. That um, your mother made or your father made? Uh, or your grandmother? A, mi- a mixture, you know, there were, you know, I have these memories of my grandmother when I was a little boy. She always wore black after her husband died, you know, very old school Sicilian woman. And I remember these little tins with all of her little cookies, handmade cookies in her, in her biscotto. And we'd come in the back in the kitchen and she'd open it up and put a few cookies on the on the plate for us. And again, that was part of the Italian tradition. There is the, still, even in Italy today, there is the dolce di credenza, you know, the types of cakes and things that you would keep in the cupboard. So when the kids came in the afternoon, 
you know, instead of eating unhealthy food, it was usually a cake or a pie or a crostata or some biscotti or torte or something that you would nibble on, and that would sort of carry over till it was dinner time. Um, and so my grandmother always had that. And then, um, you know, I don't know, there were there were dishes that, like, my father made this very Sicilian dish of uh, pasta, pasta con il broccoli, which is... Uh, um, pasta and cauliflower and you know my father used to joke around and said you know with one head of cauliflower and one pound of pasta and water you can feed a family of eight and um, it was funny years later I was doing some consulting for Barilla and they asked for a, a very simple recipe um, and it just I just like that's it that's one of my you know, favorite dishes. Do you, you know it? It's like I, you know what? No, I just make it myself. I love cauliflower. Yeah, so you break up a cauliflower, put it in boiling water, break up the spaghetti, little piece, throw it in, it boils, it thickens itself, a little olive oil and pecorino, parmigiano, black pepper. It's like it's it's, it's unctuous. It's full of flavor and it's healthy. And you know, it probably the boiled cauliflower is not the greatest smell in the kitchen, but but still, it's just delicious. And you know. Lentils, spaghetti with lenticchia, pasta con lenticchia, boiled lentils with boiled spaghetti and olive oil. You know, these were things I grew up on that none of my friends were eating. Or, or you know, when I was a kid, my dad go to the fish market and buy these like periwinkles, and we'd sit there with a little pin and pick the periwinkles out. And my friends would be like, "Oh my god, they look like boogers," you know. And they were like, "Yeah," you know. But that was uh, that was my world. That's kind of where I grew up. Wow. Okay, we're gonna take a break and we'll come right back. Okay, welcome back. You're listening to Chef's Story. And today my guest in Milan, because he's here at the Expo at the J-Bar Restaurant, which is the James Beard Foundation uh, restaurant in Milan, which we're holding in conjunction with Expo, is Paul Bartolata from Bartolata's in Las Vegas. But you also have a slew of restaurants in Milwaukee as well. Um, You do. And we'll get to there. But tell me about your chef's journey. I mean, how did you become a fine dining chef? You love food. But where did you get you went to all these Michelin starred restaurants in France and I don't cook that way. <laughs> no but you know at such a young age how did you fall into that from Milwaukee well um, my sister was working at the Rainbow Room as I said for, for Tony May and telling him oh my brother's going to be a chef and uh, my first job in Milwaukee was uh, you know working as a dishwasher in a pizza place then as a grill cook in a little place in Milwaukee called the Chancery who was actually our first partner in our businesses in Milwaukee Joe DeRosa and then subsequently, um, I was visiting, I saw an ad in the paper for an apprenticeship with a master continental chef, and I interviewed with this guy, his name was Giovanni Marangeli, Gaetano Giovanni Marangeli, and, and I, I met with him, and he said, you know, you should pay me to apprentice here. And I kind of went back to my dad, and I said, wow, this guy wants me to pay him, is he nuts? I'm making $2.40 an hour, I'm rolling in it as a grill cook at the Chancery. And he said, he wants me to go pay him to go work for free, he's nuts. And about two weeks later, I kept talking about it. My dad said, well, if it's so crazy, why are you still talking about this? I said, well, he was kind of an interesting guy. And he goes, well, we'll talk to him again. So I called him up, I went back, I set up another interview for myself. I went back to him and he said to me, well, you don't have to pay me, but you're going to work for free. And I'm like, I'm not going to work for free. And he's like, well, come in for a couple nights and see what we're doing. So I followed him for a couple nights, and seven months later, I hadn't gotten paid a penny. Um, and but he was an incredible mentor because um, I, 
he would have me assemble the ingredients, he would cook it, and I would plate it. And and what he taught me is a formula that I teach a lot of my young chefs, which is which is this. You know, if you, first you need to have a taste memory. You need to be able to memorize a flavor in order to recreate it. And after six months, I was saying to my dad, I said, I'm working for free. I'm doing all the prep work. I'm doing all the cleaning. And I said, but I, I never cook a thing. And one night, seven, eight months into it, he walked off the line, lit a cigarette, grabbed himself a cup of coffee and said, you're cooking tonight. And I said, okay. So I, I heated up the burners and I got a couple of orders came in. I said, okay, chef, you know, everything's ready. Come on. I got all the plates ready. The pans are hot. And he goes, no, no, you don't understand. You're cooking. I said, I've never made any of these dishes. He goes, you're cooking. I'm not cooking. And the waiters started coming saying, John, you know, somebody's got to make dinner here. And, and he said, Paul's cooking. And all of a sudden, I started putting the meat in the pan, and, and, and all of a sudden, I realized that all the times that I put the plate together with the ingredients and then watched him cook it and then plated it and tasted it and plated it, I realized that I really did learn how to cook by really studying what he was doing. And I remembered, like, when I started cooking some things, saying, oh, my pan's a little too hot. But I also remember seeing when he was doing it and his pan was a little bit too hot, I'd be like, oop, your pan's a little too hot. You know, and, I, and, I, and the food started talking to me and I immediately was able to make that dish that I'd never made before, and it came out like remarkably well. And I learned that the balance of ingredients, too much onion, not enough onion, too much garlic, not enough garlic, too many chicken livers, not enough chicken livers, the balance in relationship with the ingredients, the time that you cook something and at what temperature, so balance of ingredients plus time plus temperature equals taste. If you're cooking something at too high heat, it's going to brown, it's going to have one taste. If you don't caramelize it enough, it's going to have a different taste. And so I learned that sort of stupid formula that I then communicate to my cooks. Balance of ingredients plus time plus temperature equals taste. And, and, and this guy taught me how to develop flavor and understood how to create flavor. And then I went to visit my sister in New York who was working for Tony May and, you know, Tony sat me down. I remember exactly what table in the Rainbow Room. And, and he said, so I hear you want to be a chef. And I said, yes. And he said, like, tell me what you know about beans. And I was like, beans? Well, you know about beans? And he said, you see, you know, young chefs, they focus too much on recipes and not about the food and the history and whatever it was. And he said, would you like to go to Italy? I said, yes. He said, well, I know lots of Italian chefs. Write me a letter to show me you're serious. Do you speak Italian? I said, no. He said, do you have any money saved? I said, absolutely not. I was working practically for free. Um... And he said, well, do what you can do. Six months later, I wrote him a letter right away when I got back. Six months later, he calls me up on a Thursday. He said, yeah, Paul, Tony May. And he's like, you have to be here on Friday. You know, on, on Saturday, we're going up to my house in Greenwich. On Sunday, we're doing this dinner at the Rainbow Room. On Monday, you leave for Italy. You start your new job on Tuesday. And I had like a week to put my life together. So I hadn't saved it. He said, don't worry about it. He said, he said you know, do you speak Italian at all? Have you taken it? I said, no, I haven't. And he said, well, you didn't do what I asked you to do, but come anyway. And so I did a dinner with my relatives. They all put money in a hat for me. Um, that was a, My parents didn't really have lots of means to assist. I left with about $2,000, a little less. Um, and I went to visit Tony May in New York and then was off to Italy. And um, I was supposed and to be in Italy. What period of time was that? I mean, uh, late uh, 1979, 1980. Yeah, but how, from the time from Milwaukee to landing in Italy... Knowing Tony May, how many months? Was that months? It was about six months since I first met him, yeah. but there was absolute radio silence. Like, he called me on, like, a, early in a week, and within that weekend, I had to be in New York, and the following, like, Tuesday, I was working. So I, you know, it was, like, no lead time. Not, like, months, like, a week. Oh, wow. But, you know, Tony May, obviously, was running the Rainbow Room, so he, yeah. time, money was not yeah. relevant to him. I was this poor little right. kid in Milwaukee, so... 
So and he, you know, Tony wanted to give me this big envelope full of money, and I said, "That's very thoughtful of you." He said, "He said I want to help you," and I said, "I thank you." I said, "If I need something, I'll call you." But I, I have enough money; I think I'll be fine. And I didn't, but I don't know. It just I didn't hardly know the man, yeah, you know, yeah. so I wasn't going to take money. So where did he send you? So he sent me first with Angelo Paracucchi at Locanda dell'Angelo in Amelia, eh, bordering between Liguri and Toscana, and. Um, Paracucci was an amazing chef. He did the Italian fortnights with Tony at the Rainbow Room, and um, actually, the, uh, there's a picture I think I showed you last night yeah, in yeah. front of the in front of the Galleria dell'Accademia, in front of the D- Michelangelo's Davide. That was working in his restaurant. I'd been in Italy for six months, four months, whatever it was. He did a dinner in that Galleria, and I was that was right in the beginning of my apprenticeship. Wow! Yeah, wow. really cool. That and I can I know the menu. From that so, dinner. What was it? It was scampi rosa. He made this pink sort of mayonnaise with tomato and crustacean sauce. And he boiled langoustines and glazed them with this like light mayonnaise and artichokes. Uh, he made um, this, uh, this type of uh, ravioli. And then he did a, uh, this uh, cheese ravioli. Uh, and then he did... Um, and then we did a, um, a whole, bay, whole sea bass with uh, zabaglione made with caviar. Uh, and then he did a, a, a quince reduced syrup with fresh fruit and, and a lemon sorbet. Um, and, and there was very little cooking. We had to cook out in the back in this like courtyard, um, this catered event. It was for Stefano Ricci. Uh, the st- and I still have a copy of the menu and the photo. Um, and and so he sent me to Italy. I was supposed to be in Italy for six months with Paracucchi. And then Paracucchi called San Domenico, which was also friends of Tony May, and got me in with Valentino and Morini. And I it became my home. I was there for seven years. And during that period, um, I, became the, I became the chef de cuisine at, at 22 years old of a two-star Michelin restaurant. And... And then I said to them, that's great, but I need to learn. So then I used that as my home base. And uh, Morini began sending me to work with these people that were called Lini Italian Cucina. So I worked with Franco Colombani. I worked at Sauro Brunicardi at Lamora. I worked at Romano in Viareggio. I worked at La Manuelina in Recco. I went to eat that's the focaccia right, there, right across yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah. I worked there. Um, Signor Carbone. Um, I worked at uh, Mestre La Meglia. I worked at Aimonadia here in Milano. And then I worked down in Central... I worked down in Sicily at... Um, at La Scuderia in Palermo, Due Ghiottoni a Bari, Cacciani e Frascati outside of Rome. How long would you stay in all these? Oh, sometimes three weeks, a month, whatever it was. These were more like trattoria so restaurants. So was it, was it to learn the local? The regional food. And every time I was there, I would say, you know, where does this cheese made? And they would set a cheese tour. And I'd go out fishing with the fishermen. And, and I, I had all these, because I was there, I heard Tony May. I wasn't there to write recipes. I was there to understand how... History and geography create food, food anthropology. It's, it's, you, if you understand the geographical location, you understand the historical context of how these foods were developed, and then you learn about the ingredients, now you have a foundation by which to make it. And I was saying to some people here last night that as an American, just because I'm Italian-American, uh, I want to represent Italy. So I don't want to be this false ambassador of Italian food. I want to be the real guy. And I want to back it up with knowledge. I don't want to ever be caught. And yet, I, I'm a little critical of some of the young chefs here in Italy because, you know, sometimes I say to these guys, like, like you know, you're from Milan. I said, have you ever apprenticed anywhere else? He's like, no. I said, well, do you ever go eat in Liguria? No, no, I've never been to Liguria. And I said, well, what do you know about pesto? I said, yeah, it's basil. I said, no. 
I said, but you have to go eat pesto in Liguria because that's where you'll taste the taste that you can then recreate. You can follow a million recipes, but until you know the destination, you don't know how the road can swerve around based on today's ingredients. And so, so I traveled everywhere, and I am a ferocious downloader of information and tastes and memories and experiences because that's my... That's my lexicon. So what, what made you cross the country border into France? Was that well, the no, well, Tony hated that idea. Tony was like, oh. <laughs> no, but I, but I would tell you, San Domenico was two-star Michelin restaurant. It was members of Relais Chateau and Tradition et Qualité. And, and I realized that I had a network of, and Mr. Maureen and Valentino would go to these big conferences where these reunions, and I realized, you know, Valentino had studied in France. He was doing a little somewhat French-influenced food at the time and then evolved as well. Um, but I realized that, you know, having Bocus on your resume probably wouldn't be a bad thing. <laughs> You know, and, and so, you know, Morini took me to meet Roger Verger first, and I stayed with Verger for three and a half months, and we were closing up for the season. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, we played soccer every afternoon. I played soccer against Ducasse. You know, that, that's how, you know, my time goes back. And, of course, I was the American. I was the goalie. You know, I couldn't play soccer. So, okay, you're the goalie. We're just going to kick the ball at you, right? Um, and uh, but but I was at Verger first, and then the season was over, and he said, "What are you doing next, Paul?" Verger was so nice to me, and he wanted me to cook Italian food for him every day because he was curious about Italian food. And then I said, "Well, I don't know. I've got a stage in about you know five months with Trois Gros." And he said, "In the meantime, I said, well, I'd probably go back to Italy." And he goes, "Do you want me to set something up for you?" And I said, "Well," he said, "I have some friends," and I'm like, "Oh, okay." Yeah, I bet you do. Right. And like ten minutes later, he comes down. And he goes, "Yes, Philippe." He calls this young chef. He says, "Yes, you're going up to Lyon today." He says, Yes, he said. You start tomorrow with Bocuse. I mean, and because I proved myself, both my work ethic, my commitment, my curiosity. I was the first one in the kitchen. I was the last one to leave. I stayed there every single afternoon. And I remember one day, uh, just a, a, a Verger story. Like they went all tons of lobsters, and I was chucking lobsters for hours, and my hands were getting all beat up. And I remember the young, all the people there saying to me, "You know, you're not." Um, he said, you know, you know, you, you have to, you're spending all your time doing this. And I realized, like, I'm here paying to stay in a room, to work for free, and all I'm doing is something I already know how to do. So I went to the fish guy, and I said, listen, can you deliver these at 6 a.m.? He's like, sure. He said, but who's going to be here? I said, I'll get the key to open up. So instead of cleaning lobsters from 9 a.m. to noon, I got the delivery at 6 a.m., and by 9 a.m., I was done with lobsters, and I was saying, Somebody going to teach me how to make sauce? Somebody teach because I was going to be in Italy, in France, just to do a grunt work or you know shuck peas. I mean, I can figure that out on my own. And Verge, he heard that I was doing this, and he came to me one day and he said, "So you rearranged the delivery schedule?" And I thought I was going to be in such trouble. And I said, "Yes, Monsieur Verge." And he said, "Why?" And I said, "Well, because." Because I, want, I came here to learn, and I already know how to shuck lobsters, so I know I have to earn it and do it for you. I said, I have no problem doing it. I said, but I want to see other things. He immediately looked to the chef, Serge Cholet, and he said, Serge, he's on sauce. He's on sauce from now on. He's on the line with everybody else. And I was working with Serge Cholet and Thomas and all these top you know, German yeah. kid and, and Guy and all these guys making all the sauces because I went out of my way. Whatever. And the chefs would make fun of me because after my hands got all cut up shucking lobsters. I went down to the supermarket and bought like these women's like gloves yes, to do it faster. And they were all making fun of me, right? You know, oh, look at the little boy with his little fake women's gloves and whatever. <laughs> but the next guy who came on board after about a week... <laughs> Gloves. <laughs> yeah, American ingenuity. Exactly. American Wake up and smell the coffee. So you, you're one of the few people, I think, that really is in a, in a fine position to say, what's the difference between 
French cuisine and Italian cuisine? Well, let me describe this in a simple way. One day, I'm at a very famous winemaker's home in the center of Florence, and I'm in his private study, and I see this little statue in the corner, and I walk over and I say, wow, it's beautiful, and he whispers in my ear, he says, Giotto. I said, are you serious? He goes, no, no, Giotto. And he says, kneel down. And I knelt down, and he said, now look. And he walked over, and he opened up these big windows in his palazzo. And directly from where the statue was facing, across the room, through the windows, was the Campanile of Giotto, in the bell tower in Florence at the Duomo. Right? Years later, I'm traveling, and I'm at Versailles. And all you see is mirrors and paintings with all... And there, is, there was the need to show something, to show off something, to, make, to prove something. I was looking at a castle not too long ago in Toscana that dates back to 900. An old Italian castle. And they want to renovate it, maybe do a restaurant or something, dating back to 900s. And the guy says to me, you know... He says, they take a 120-year-old chateau in France and they light it up and they serve some wine and they make it into something amazing. And he goes, this castle is where the history of the Renaissance began. He said, that's history, my friend. So it's not that one's better, but I think if you look at it from... I went to France clearly because there was a level of professionalism that was lacking in the, in the Italian kitchen. There was a brigade system. There was a saucier. There was, uh, you know, the garmanger. There was patissier, chocolatier. Italy in restaurants, they're more mom and poppy. That's changing. That has changed. But there was a brigade system then. There was a technique that was involved. And it was important for me to broaden my horizons. So it was an invaluable lesson. But I went to France and I didn't write down any recipes. I went there to learn the technique, the organization, the discipline, the professionalism. And obviously the culture and the language and all that there is, I mean, they're amazing. But I was true to what was important to me. I was never going to come back and do French food. It was just never in the cards. So, so, you, you, so the difference between the great... Between pesto great and pistou, between yeah. cassola in Lombardia and cassoulet, between, yeah, I mean... Is Between there, pizza la dière, which is pizza l'Andrea. Can you sum it in one word, the difference between those? I think that they blend in. I think when you're in Nice and Liguria, um, you know, there's such a similarity. Yeah. I, mean, there's, I mean, difference. They're, I mean, they're very different. They're, they're, the people are so, their, their, their way of being their, is so incredibly different. But, I, I mean, I, I love going to France. I mean, the Italians got a long way to go to make pastry like the French. You know, and, and there's a professionalism in the Michelin-starred restaurants that I think Italy is, is catching up to. But still, but yet there's something genuine. Like, when you eat, when you eat something Italian, like, for example... You know, the French got caught up in the sameness. They had such rigor and such discipline that if you ate hollandaise sauce in Melbourne, Australia, New York City, or Paris, it was the same thing. 
And I was saying last night, you eat tortellini in the center of Bologna, and there are 15 restaurants, and everyone is making the authentic one. Yes. And they will, they will fight you to the death to prove that theirs is the real one. And one's made only with sausage, and the other one only prosciutto. And one's got turkey and Italian sausage and, and, and prosciutto. And one is like heavy with no nutmeg, and the other one says, oh, nutmeg, absolutely not, never nutmeg in my tortellini. And they're all a little bit different, but they're all delicious. So there's a certain individualism, uh, even in my waiters. Like when I train my waiters to, to set a table, and I'm so, from my mom's side, so I have that rigor, that discipline. I loved France for that. But I'd set the silver exactly in this direction. And of course, the Italian will walk by and he'll move it just a little. Because there's this desire to be their individual. They just, you know, there's no conformity. That is really well they, they, they just, they, they just, my waiters are the most unmanageable people, but they make my restaurant. My restaurant in Las Vegas is amazing because my, I let them, I create fences to a certain extent, but I give them space in the, in the yard. I give them a corral that's big enough to let them be themselves, but I create the boundaries. And within that, they're like ambassadors of me. I'm here, but I got a crew of, of servers and, and people in my restaurant that just, they really drank the Kool-Aid. They, they believe in what we're doing. They're proud of what we're doing. And you should be. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. Hi. 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 I'm sorry. I, I have to see I'm you. So, I'm so, so you're going to join us? My wife, Robbie. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, this is the love of my life. Hey, honey. I don't have much makeup on. I know. My daughter. By the way, I like you with no makeup. My daughter is mom. No, I like you with no makeup. My, my hair doesn't look right for her. No, but, and well, your daughter's like, like the fashion. And how's your daughter? I literally look? just put on a dress and that's yeah, it. Can, can, I, I, can, I, can I say? But you know what? Can I say something? Again, no, no, no nails. No, no, Robbie. Probably, Robbie. I love it with no makeup. I've, I've always said when uh, you put on too much makeup, on the Callous fingers is horrible. Oh, so when you, oh. you know. Come I, on. I, 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 relax, sit down. Yeah. All right. So now we're gonna because you're gonna have we're to gonna go. Finish. So oh, wait a minute. You're good. They're good. The, the, last night we didn't start the, the meal till like eight fifteen, nine yeah, o'clock because so all the Italians are late. The Americans show up at seven thirty for the reception. All the Italians show up for an eight for no eight thirty dinner. The Italians start showing up a quarter to nine, saying, "Where are the hors d'oeuvres?" Right. Right. Okay. So let's just uh, to the next part. Welcome back. You're listening to Chef Story, and I'm Dorothy Can Hamilton, broadcasting from Milan, Italy, at the J Bar, J- James Beard Restaurant, in the Galleria. And my guest tonight is Paul Bartolotta from Las Vegas, and Win. I, you know, you you have such depth of um, thought on what you cook, why you cook, how you cook, that um, I kind of want to I want to ask you, where do you think the state of cooking is? today you're you're performing at the very top of the very top you know very top you don't you can't go to a better restaurant than yours and and thoughtful delicious pristine product where are we going from here uh uh, in me personally or you personally and you know, what? I'm going backwards. I'm deliberately going backwards. You know, I worked in all those Michelin, you know, Verger, Toigreau, Bocuse, Taiwan, Pastry with Lenotte, and all these restaurants, all these little trattorias in Italy and San Domenico, two-star Michelin, right? 
opened New York, then I took over Spiaggia, was doing very Alta Cucina, we had four stars in Chicago, so very high-end food. And then Steve calls me to do this thing in Vegas, and I start a company with my brother in Milwaukee doing restaurants, and I realize that as much as it is about food, it's also about the experience and about having a story to tell. The, the, the consumer wants not just to eat a delicious meal, that's like a minimum bar. With such good cooking going anywhere, it's got to be more than just a good meal. It's got to be a great meal. It's got to be a story. It's got to be an adventure. And so I started thinking about storytelling and I started thinking about what I love about my business. And I realized that it's all the experience. It's working with a cheesemaker or out hunting with the truffle makers to, to, to have them tell, or the truffle hunters, when they blindfold you and they walk into the woods. And when I tell a story about the fact that I was blindfolded and driven around for hours, to go hunting for truffles and it turns out on the way home was a five minute drive so I'm like wait a second you know and I realize it's somewhere nearby here because we got home in five minutes you know and so you realize that 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 that's the reality of the world we live in and that and that the the this, the excitement that people have for reality TV is it's a bird's eye view toward the White House or bird's eye view entourage it's a bird's eye view to what a celebrity in LA life is like what I have found out is that people are genuinely curious to know what our lives are like. And while people think we're a big deal, we're cooks at the end of the day, but, but the reality is if we can tell them who we are and how we got to where we are and what it took to find these ingredients or how we learned or where this recipe comes from, the little soft-shell crabs or the little rosette that we're going to make tonight or things like this, people want more than just delicious. They, wanna, they want to have a context that we have. So our ability to communicate becomes even more important because we sort of, you know, you can look at a great painting, but if you're sitting with an art historian who'll tell you that Leonardo used these brush strokes and these types of oils and these types of paints and the colors came, all of a sudden it makes more sense to you and you have a deeper knowledge. So instead of just sort of passing over a piece of art, if you can have a tour guide walk you through something, all of a sudden you'll understand Leonardo, I'm, I'm no Leonardo, by the way, but I'm just saying, you know, you'll understand something with greater depth. And so our job is not only just to do food, but to be able to, like, engage your servers and train your staff. And the more you invest in those people, the more those people transmit your enthusiasm to the customer. And that's the experiential part of a restaurant experience. It's way more than just dinner. It is way more than, but you're doing that already. What to you is a challenge right now? Um, the, the challenge is that um, I'm, a, I'm at a, a point in my career where, you know, the media has changed the landscape so much that, that um, you have to be resolved with, the, with who you are and where you are and not spend any time looking at what other people are doing. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't subscribe to magazines very often. Um, I don't follow what people are doing on the Internet. I don't tweet. I don't have a Facebook some would say you're antisocial, you're a hermit, or you're losing track with where the world is going. I think that too much of that makes you crazy. There's somebody who always makes more money than you. There's somebody who always gets more prestige than you. There's a, and when you start comparing yourself with other people or seeing what they you start losing who you are. And for me to be an individual is the most important part of my being. So 
I choose to play to my own drumbeat. I gravitate toward what interests me. And so if it's out with my fishermen and, and going to their home or, or going to a restaurant that they recommend in that local village and eating that food and being inspired to go back and think about those ingredients in different ways, that's what excites me. And I've realized that, that as I got older, I became less interested in, say, what people are going to say or think about my cooking. I became more interested in cooking what, what I wanted to eat. And the odd part about that is I found out that people are interested in knowing what I want to eat. And it's very simple food. And if you ask chefs where they like to eat and you follow where chefs actually go to eat, they go to eat in places with, with no disrespect that I cook in. They go to eat where I when, – when any chef is – big chef is in, in Vegas, they're in my restaurant – because of me? No. Because they've heard about the product that I have, and I'm, I'm just doing honor to that product. And all of a sudden, they're eating four types of lobster, and they're like, wow, slipper lobster, spiny lobster, uh, um, uh, blue uh, rock lobster. Or they'll come in and order spider crab and live langoustines for my live tanks. And, and you know, they don't want me to peel them and inject them with a, you know, a truffle syrup and wrap them in something and, you know, serving with lentils picked by blind monks at 800 meters and fleur de sel and architectural salad and microgreens everywhere. I mean, who cares anymore? Everybody's doing the same old crap. Instead, I cut a langoustine in half and I put it on the grill. My langoustine is alive and I put it on the grill and I drizzle it with an amazing olive oil. And it's about this clarity, this pureness of it and about showcasing. And it's less about PB as a chef and a lot more about my fishermen and my ingredients and the authenticity of reproducing something super Italian, the way the Italians eat it. So, uh, I, I mean, to me, the future is, is remembering to find your own voice in your food. If that's the future, the future is be careful about all this collectivism and all this static that's out there and everybody trying to cook and act and look like everybody else. Because if you can't have a voice, when you hear Pavarotti's sound of his voice, it is unmistakable that it's his. And you look at these food magazines or the, and you see all this food and it all looks beautiful, but you don't know if it's Charlie Trout's food, you know, 10 years ago or, or this other guy, you know, and you look at it and it's just like all these amazing chefs, but there's just a lot of copying, there's a lot of, I want to be able to look at somebody's food or smell somebody's dish and say, wow, that was made by that guy, you know, and know that person's personality. That, to me, is, is in a way a form of artistry, mm-hmm. finding your voice. But, but for me, it's more about sort of being true to what comes naturally to me. If it, is, if, if it, if it isn't being born from within you, it isn't yours. That's true. And, 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 I, and if, if people like it, great. If they don't like it, I'm okay with that. You know, so I'm, you're I'm, evolving. Do you, how do you describe yourself as, as a... Italian American chef, an Italian. Well, listen. Chef? In Milwaukee, I've got a French bistro. I have a steakhouse. I have a hamburger place. I have a contemporary American restaurant. I have three airport restaurants. We have catering venues. I have a cafeteria and a bank where I do you know all these like live action stations. We've done a lot of things that are curious that stimulate me. My biggest job every day is. Building a life that allows me the freedom to live the life I want to live, um, not worrying how I'm judged by others, and making sure that I am bringing up people with me. Adam, my chef in the kitchen, James Beard, award-winning chef, 
been with me for 23 years. Um, there are three other chefs in our other restaurants, no less, 14 years, seven years, eight years. My chef at Ristorante in Wauwatosa, 22-year-old restaurant, my chef's been with me 17 years. These are people that have been with me from the beginning. My brother, my partner, you know, inseparable since day one. We're a 22-year-old company, you know, 1,200 employees, and, and I can't supervise it. My brother can't supervise it. Our job is to create the opportunity. 2,200. No, what? 200. How many employees? We have like 1,200, something like that. I don't know, exactly. Over 1,000, I don't know, a lot. Anyway, but, but too many, too many to manage. But what we what we found is for us to do what we like to do, my brother likes to create, and I liked to develop and create and allow other people to make it their own. And so I'm not the guy promoting myself as those restaurants. I let my chefs there be the star because... Again, I love Milwaukee, but it's not where I where it's not where I'm going to hang my hat. I live part time in Italy with my wife and daughter. I'm in in Italy. I'm in Las Vegas a lot. All consume. I'm out with my fishermen, okay. so I'm sort of all over the place in my life. How are you? Oh, ciao, buonasera. Well, we're gonna. I've been getting signals here. Oh, we've got, we've got a restaurant full of people. That okay, it's time to go cook for, dinner. Waiting for you. Anyway, I'm long winded. Thank you I'm so sorry. much. We no, no, no. I just loved every single minute of this. No. Thank you so much for. Okay. You know, we've talked about this we ha- for years and just never made I know, it happen. So I, know. I usually I, on the phone. Who yes, called exactly. to Paul three hours later? No. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much, right. and um, thank my producer Jack Insley, and we'll see you next time.